0: Hello, welcome back to Popcorn Podcast with Lee and Tim, where this week we are taking you through Ridley Scott's latest historical epic, Napoleon, plus all the latest movie and trailer news. I'm Tim Ifland, movie buff.
1: And I'm Lee Livingstone, entertainment journalist.
0: And we love to talk all things movies, don't we, Lee?
1: Oh, we absolutely do. And as Tim mentioned at the top of this episode, we're discussing Napoleon, which is Ridley Scott's latest historical epic detailing the rise and fall of French Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte. How do you say that properly?
0: Uh, look, I'm. Um, I don't really know, but. I'm not sure that you said it correctly.
1: (laughs) No, but please forgive us, listener. We're going to try and stumble our way through that. Well, I mean, look, the actors in the film didn't even bother trying a French accent, so why should we?
0: police that is one of my points for discussion when we talk characters and performances don't you know it
1: (laughs) okay sorry i digress anyway napoleon is about the conqueror's relentless journey to power told through the prism of his addictive volatile relationship with his wife josephine
0: directed by ridley scott who has brought us such incredible cinematic marvels like gladiator the Martian. Blade Runner and Alien, to name a few. It's from a screenplay by David Scarper, who previously wrote one of Ridley Scott's latest films, All the Money in the World.
1: Napoleon stars Joaquin Phoenix as the man himself, Vanessa Kirby as his lover Josephine, Rupert Everett as the Duke of Wellington, hilarious, <laughs> Paul Rees, Edouard Philipponat, Ben Miles and Tahir Rahim.
0: This has been a long time coming. I know Napoleon's been like a film that Ridley Scott has been wanting to make for many, many years. And there's a lot of ground to cover here. And I'm sure there's a lot of ground uh, for us to discuss in this story. So, where do we begin, Lee, in terms of unpacking this bad boy?
1: Well, Tim, I'm just going to shatter the glass right up front and say, I was so bored in this film. (laughs) Oh my God. And you can tell when I'm bored because I just talk at you through the whole movie.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I do want to ask you, because I, I did recognize that you were bored in the movie. It was one of the first things you said to me when we came out was that you were so bored.
1: Oh, what you noticed? I was hiding it so well.
0: At what point did the movie lose you?
1: Um, I think it was about halfway in. I started to really, really lose interest in it. I want to caveat this by saying there are some things that I did really like about the film, but mm. just overall at the end of it, I was quite bored. And the fact that it was two and a half hours long, two an hours and 40 minutes almost. Yeah. Yeah. We came out of there and everybody was like, the time went so fast. And I thought, oh my God, no, it didn't. No, it went (laughs) so slow it dragged on. But maybe that was just me. Are we on the same page about this or do you have a differing opinion?
0: Look, I can't say that I was bored in the film, but that doesn't mean that I particularly loved it and enjoyed it. There were definitely elements of this movie that I was mesmerized by, especially when it comes to how the film was shot and the action and the look of it, absolutely, which we'll dive Mm -hmm. into. But for a two hours and 38 minute film, Uh, you would think that I'd kind of be on the same board fence with you. But I think it came down for me that it just moved so fast. It was so choppy, Mm. which made the story like, I don't know how you felt, was quite incoherent and hard to follow. Yeah, Because if you don't come in with uh, an understanding of Napoleon and that history – Of French politics back, you know, 200 or so years Mm. ago, then this isn't the film for you because it doesn't explore or explain anything. It's just assumed knowledge and it just moves like a freight train. So for that reason alone, I wasn't bored because it was just throwing shit at me all the time, (laughs) but I didn't really understand the movie and what it was trying to say.
1: Yeah. As you said, it does lean on a fair amount of presumed knowledge about French history, like the reign of terror, apparently the Royalist Mm. insurrection, all these things that we were like... What is that? What was that? What was this? What was that? I mean, mm. I think everyone knows Waterloo. They know they know the Battle of Waterloo where Napoleon surrenders. And that was a bit anticlimactic too, which is like one of the most pivotal moments, I think, in his career as a general and as a leader. Yeah, It's a really fine line to walk, isn't it? Because you need to treat the audience as intelligent enough to not have to spell everything out. But you also can't mm-hmm. go too far over their head without explaining some of the most basic Things.
0: The only thing they seem to take care in giving you some context were constant title cards of what year it was mm. and what moment in history. Like you mentioned, the reign of terror. I think we turned to each other and we were like, what's the reign of terror? And I just pointed at <laughs> the screen and go, I think it's this. <laughs> you know, <then.
1: laughs> We're about to see it. We're about to see yeah. what the reign of terror is.
0: We're about to see it, but we just you move on so quickly from mm. it. So you don't even get a chance to try and through osmosis, try and understand what these moments in history were because they barely sat in them for long enough and just moved on Mm. to the next thing, which is a casualty of covering so many decades of a really complex life that was Napoleon and all the things he he achieved and did.
1: Yes, and he had such a huge life, which is ironic because he was known as being quite... Short, I believe, which they did allude to a little bit, and Viking Phoenix <laughs> is not short, so you know there's that whole thing as well. Um, but how long did the film actually mm. span? Are you do you know how long of his life it actually did span? Were you keeping track of the title uh, cards?
0: <laughs> so, uh, kind of, I kept track of the first one and then I, I lost it. So we start in 1789, and that's at the end of the French Revolution, and we see the beheading mm. of Marie Antoinette. So we start there, but Napoleon looks. To be, It was hard to tell the passage of time with the age because Joaquin Phoenix looked the same every time except the different hats he was wearing. But he looked like <laughs> to be in his early mid-twenties maybe. And yeah. then I think he dies in 1830-something. I, I'm not entirely clear. Right. I just don't okay. remember.
1: Yeah, it is, it is quite a lot of major events and this huge complex life, as you said, to fit into this film. And it is two and a Mm. half hours plus long already but it Mm. almost needed to be a lot longer. And having Mm. said that, there is actually a four hour and ten minute director's cut apparently which is coming to Apple TV+. Plus. So the streaming service Mm. will get the director's cut. And apparently that features more of Josephine's life before she meets Napoleon, you would you would presume a bit more on the politics and a bit more on his life and his motivations and his ambition. Did I miss something mm. at the beginning of the film where they kind of explained who he was and where he came from or no? No,
0: nope, you didn't miss it. It literally okay. wasn't there. So there was no context to Napoleon. He was just weirdly in the shadows when Marie lost her head. Uh, <laughs> okay. And then he comes <laughs> sweeping in and says a couple of things and then he's on the his rise and fall, rise and fall, which was also really hard to follow exactly whether he was in good light or bad light and he was promoted and then he was emperor and I was like, what the fuck's going on?
1: (laughs) What's going on? His hat just kept getting bigger and bigger and that's how you could tell that time was passing and Josephine's hair, of course, her hair was getting longer.
0: Yes, because she came in kind of looking like Anne Hathaway in, what's the, Les Miserables. Because you know, at yeah. the end of the French Revolution, I thought, oh, yeah. is this like a crossover that I didn't see coming?
1: She's, she's Anne Hathaway chic.
0: Yeah, she is. <laughs> but no, we, we didn't understand anything about Josephine. She she kind of came in with her two kids and she was a widow. Yeah. All, all that we got between the two of them was them just incessantly and constantly Awkwardly staring at each other from across the room in a party, mm. and then they get it on and they get married, and here we have yeah. this love affair that goes on for decades.
1: Yeah, and that's the thing I think is the film is marketed as this romance, this and historical epic. So the the mm. duality of that. To me, it didn't really feel like it sat in either camp. You know, Napoleon and Josephine are sort of known to have this romance for the ages. We have this perspective through their love letters that, you know, while he was away at war he was writing her these romantic letters and all, you know, it's all seen through this rose coloured lens and obviously Ridley Scott has taken a more realistic approach given Mm. the times and what was going on and who Napoleon was as a man and, and a woman's role during that time. But I feel like he relegated Josephine to this society-climbing wily harlot, for lack of a better word, who seemed to have almost Stockholm Syndrome. You know, Mm. it feels like this relationship was written by a man who didn't really know what to do with the female character.
0: Yeah, it was such a shame because you are right. It's pitched as this, you know, of course we know Napoleon as this great uh, tactical person on the battlefield, his political tenacity, which... Talk about a little bit more because I don't particularly agree with that from what we saw in the film, but this love story, this uh, this obsession, it was it was childish. It was quite disturbing to see play out. I think Stockholm syndrome is a is a real way to mm. kind of describe what we saw. But jo- Josephine doesn't really have a great deal of, of substance, or she's she's not written in a way that she presents in anything pretty exciting. (laughs) Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. And maybe that is the case. You know, maybe they really did have this kind of toxic codependency and, and emotionally blackmail each other. And she just wasn't really all that interested Mm. in him, but wasn't marketed that way. So it was confusing when you sit down and you see something completely different.
0: Because their relationship uh, was quite dull on screen other than them fucking like jackrabbits every five minutes and then they would just sit in silence with each other and just yeah. say bizarre things from time to time. It, I wasn't getting swept up in their relationship at all.
1: <laughs> yeah, again, it skates over a lot. It skates over the politics of of his rise and fall. It skates over their love affair really quickly. It's almost like just trying to stuff too much into a short film. And I can't believe I'm saying that because this film is not short and you know how I mm. roll my eyes whenever a film's over two hours, but mm. this film really does need a director's cut. I think
0: we know that Ridley Scott loves a director's cut, but I'm curious because you weren't particularly enamored by this film at its current length. Will will you watch the director's cut It more than four hours? Do you think there's a good movie in there that's less the highlights reel of Napoleon and it will delve deeper and kind of come together?
1: Well, this is what I'm wondering from what we've seen because you know the pedigree of Ridley Scott. You know what he can deliver. Mm. Sometimes it's a bit hit and miss, but you you know that he knows how to do a historical epic. He does. And so I am interested to see whether it was just the cut that was really messy and things were left on the cutting room floor or whether it isn't written well um, because it's definitely not the performances. You know, Joaquin Phoenix and Vanessa Kirby have incredible chemistry. They did a really good job. I just don't think the creative choices that were made gave them room to really fly. And, you know, I read something online which made me laugh actually that – Napoleon can't be good if we want Gladiator 2 to be good because that's just how Ridley Scott works. <laughs> 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 is that true? I mean, you look back on the last couple of films that he's done with The House of Gucci and The Last Jewel. Mm. So maybe you're right. Maybe Napoleon is the good one and Gladiator 2 is going to be the crap one.
0: Oh, no. Look, I'm already quite nervous about Gladiator 2 just because it's been so long and it feels a little odd that we're getting a sequel for that film in the first place. Mm. I quite liked The Last Duel, which was one of Ridley Scott's more recent films, and it got it got murdered at the box office. Critics were really unsure of it. it it's, mm. it's just a really, really fantastically made movie. I definitely think that's better in leaps and bounds to Napoleon just because it's told better. It's more of a coherent story yes. in a really clever way. But, yeah, hopefully Gladiator 2 is not going to suffer at the hands of Napoleon.
1: I mean, there aren't many directors who can make this type of film anymore. This almost mm. Ben-Hur-like production. And I do love it. I really do love a Ridley Scott film. And it'll be a sad day when, you know, character-driven period pieces like this are being made about the 80s and 90s <laughs> or something. Mm-hmm. It'll be a sad day at the cinema. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, there's no stopping the man. No. He, and I, I quite like... The things that he says in the press, because to to put it bluntly, he doesn't give a fuck what you think. <laughs> and yep. it, there's and really tongue in cheek. I mean, there's one thing that he said about uh, Martin Scorsese. He's just making comment in jest, in light mm. that he, oh, Scorsese has only made one one film since 2019's The Irishman, which is The Killers of the Flower Moon, mm. and he's a fellow in his 80s, uh, Hollywood filmmaker icon but scott really scott's made four films in that time so he's kind of <laughs> saying well scorsese you've only managed to make two i've made twice the number of movies and i'm yeah. getting on just like you are
1: yeah he just gets on with it and you're right he just really doesn't give a fuck it's no bullshit yeah. when it comes to ridley scott and that's it's just amazing you know there's just so many ridley scott isms in this film too i mean you got a big sweeping battle scene and did we really need a graphic shot of a horse being shot in the chest by a cannonball? Mm. Really, Ridley Scott? Pretty
0: disturbing, but that's the thing that I fucking love about his filmmaking not not the not what he does to animals, um, just to be clear, but that he does not shy away from the gritty, gruesome, bloody, dirtiness of battle. Mm. He puts you in there on the battlefield it's utterly visceral and we are treated to several battle scenes in this movie that and and some are extraordinary uh some of the best battle scenes i've seen on film for for many years so it's just insane how Mm -hmm. he shoots his movies what he delivers in that sense because he has not lost any of his Mm -hmm. ability to deliver in that space as as an older filmmaker
1: absolutely and more to your point about putting you right in the middle of the battle that's another Another unique thing about how he films mm. is he uses multiple cameras and practical effects and you're right in the middle of all this action because he's got so many cameras surrounding the action he can capture every angle at once mm. and get it in that first couple of takes so it doesn't need to be recreated all that much and you get so much nuance from that because things happen in the heat of of creating a film on set and all this you know improvisation and, and it just makes for a really unique experience as you said a visceral experience putting you right in the middle of it all
0: yeah, the coverage of, of his films are amazing and it gives him so many options to tell the story. But can you imagine the, the pressure on his crew with, with 11 cameras <laughs> filming a sequence? You know, n- nothing can be not there, ready, set, done. Like there's no background yeah. to a film. It's all front and centre and they have, to, they
1: have to bring it. Before we move on to um, performances and talk a bit more about the production itself, accents, let's talk about the accents. Because, look, it's it's a given that, you know, a film like this made by Americans, full of American actors, with the exception of a couple, is going to be doing American accents. But in this day and age, it just really sticks out like a sore thumb. Mm. But I don't know what else can be done. Because if they did, you know, a House of Gucci Italian accent, but French, we'd all be picking them apart for it. So what do you do? You hire French actors. That's what you do.
0: Yeah. Or or if you're an actor and I'm looking at you, Joaquin Phoenix, I'm looking at you, Vanessa Kirby, you're playing French people. So you need to be able to come to the table and put on a French accent for that mm. authentic experience. It's really bizarre to me, Lee. and I'm so glad we're talking about this and we have talked about it on the podcast before. It's not necessarily an isolated criticism of this movie, it's of like historical epics that get made all Mm. the time, whereas they just don't bother and they put so much attention and care in making it come together as a fully realized world where you plonked in France in in the 18th Mm. century. That is utterly convincing here.
1: Through costumes, through sets, every detail is incredible except the accent.
0: Except the accents. And you know what really, really grinds my gears about this? And this is where, outside of that you're an actor and you should be able to put a French accent on, where it's really inexcusable is that you have a film that has English characters, French characters, Russian characters, Hmm. but you have... English accents being used for French characters, but then when you bring English characters in who have English accents, it's, it's very confusing when there's political conversations happening and they all fucking sound the same, but they're from different <laughs> countries. Yeah, it's like, uh, yeah. are the English talking to the English uh, or is it the English talking to the French? Uh, Joaquin Phoenix has an American accent as Napoleon, the French emperor. Yeah. It is absolutely insane and it really <laughs> annoys me.
1: Yeah, I can tell it really annoys you. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't make sense. As I said, it just sticks out like a sore thumb these days. It doesn't Mm -hmm. fly anymore. We used to accept that kind of thing all the time, but it's just not the world we live in anymore and it it really, really jars. Can we talk a little bit about the screenplay itself? Mm. We've sort of skirted around it a little bit. What did you think of of the writing of the film? Well, It's hard to tell whether it's the cut or the writing, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I... I don't think that the writing and the cut worked together very cohesively. Mm. Some of the dialogue was very strange and it it Mm -hmm. leaned more into, uh, am I watching like a comedy here? One of my – favorite lines that jumped out and I just had to write them down was (laughs) we laughed about this at the moment. It was this guy, I don't know who he was because he was probably French, but he had an uh, English accent on. So I couldn't tell you I'm enjoying a succulent breakfast (laughs) as he was being approached to be taken out of whatever sort of quarters he was in.
1: And it was so democracy manifest, wasn't it? It, it, Listener, if you're familiar with, there's this Australian video that was on the news, I believe, somewhere back in the 80s or 70s or something like that, Mm -hmm. where a guy Mm -hmm. is being arrested outside a Chinese restaurant and he's carrying on like, I don't know, a knob end drunk or something and he's (laughs) shouting about why he's being arrested and saying, am I being arrested for enjoying a meal, a succulent Chinese meal? (laughs) You're going to have to play a bit of this in the episode so that the listener can understand what we're talking about. But it was so reminiscent of that that I, I just burst out laughing.
0: I'll, I'll play it right now, and then we'll come back.
1: Why did you do this? The pop in the car, in some cups. For what reason? What
0: is the charge? Eating a meal, a succulent Chinese meal. Oh, that's a nice. Headlocks up. Yeah. So, so you can you can see, <laughs> you can hear the. I'm enjoying a succulent breakfast. As he's he been...
1: Succulent Chinese meal.
0: Succulent Chinese meal.
1: And that's exactly what happened in the movie.
0: It is. It, we, I, I was beside myself. <laughs> and I'm sure we weren't alone in that cinema, in an, an Australian audience, that, that people weren't thinking of that. Another thing, and this is a line that Napoleon says, Joaquin Phoenix says, he goes, Destiny has brought me this lamb chop, he says, <laughs> over a meal. And I thought, what's all this bizarre food-related dialogue coming out of this movie?
1: Let me throw one at you because this this one stood out to me. You know there was there was nothing really in the film about how he leads his men. He's meant to be this yes. charismatic leader, the most successful strategist of the time, and who changed history. But it was never really delved into, and it was kind of demonstrated by this really weird throwaway line towards the end, where he's coming back from exile, and he's stopped somewhere in France, by his own men who uh, have been ordered to arrest him, right? Yes. And he goes, I miss you. Will you join me? And they go, okay.
0: (laughs) Quite literally.
1: Okay. (laughs) Braveheart speech, it is not. No. You know what I mean? Like, I miss you. Will you join me? Okay. That's all it took. (laughs) It was just
0: like one of his... Oh, Josephine, I'm thinking of you all the time. Uh, Please, I love you. And he's like, please, men in uniform, did you miss me? Come, let's gallop to victory.
1: (laughs) But the letters to Josephine were written more creatively than that. My point is that it was a sentence. (laughs) I miss you. Will you join me? That's all it took for his men (laughs) to drop their undies and go, okay, (laughs) we're back.
0: They must have really, really missed him. If that's all he needed to say, <laughs> just a single tear.
1: You had me at hello. You, you had me. Had me. <laughs> you had me at will. You join me?
0: Oh god! But oh, okay, can we can we talk about, or is there anything else about the the dialogue or script you want to talk about before we go into characters?
1: I think we've made our point, listener. Yes, I think we have.
0: Just just to build on your point, then Lee about. What we're meant to expect the Napoleon was going to be on screen. What The Napoleon that Joaquin Phoenix was tasked, I guess, in our preconceived mm. notions of who Napoleon was. One of the greatest military leaders of all time. I felt nothing of the sort in mm. that sense. I never felt threatened. I never felt particularly intrigued by him or impressed even. I did see some of his like battlefield strategy play out, but I never saw like his apparent ruthless political game at play, he came across as like quite dull and a really uninteresting person Mm. that just threw tantrums from time to time and wrote soppy love letters to a woman.
1: He was quite pouty and petulant in places, which is jarringly comedic sometimes. Yes. And I think, you know, Joaquin Phoenix is an Oscar winner with good reason. His performance is always outstanding, Mm. if a little odd. You just kind of go with it. His creative choices are always bold but here in this mm. film, I don't think they translate to what this film is supposed to be. Mm. And maybe there's something we're not quite registering about Napoleon's psyche because, you know, Joaquin Phoenix is the type of actor who will really dig in deep and become this character. So there must be some kind mm. of research, some something somewhere where it's it's led him to play Napoleon as this, you know, checked out, almost catatonic Yes. Awkward, desperate person. Yeah. And there's meant to be this volatility to his romance and Napoleon as a person, but I just really didn't see that. He seemed really like when a woman was talking to him like he was gonna wet his pants or something.
0: <laughs> yeah, you just roll <laughs> over, rub my belly, sort of sort of stuff.
1: Well, I mean she opened her legs and showed him her vagina. As a, as a come on, like that was their like first courting and he just went.
0: "Mm." Yeah.
1: Yeah. Like no reaction.
0: Maybe it was the first time he'd seen a vagina. (laughs) I don't know. He was like, oh, thirty
1: Oh, 30 year old virgin.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, just to build on some of the things you, you wrap that up really beautifully, but there was some. I
1: don't know if you should use the word beautifully when I just talked about her vagina. (laughs)
0: Maybe that's the beautiful thing that we're talking about.
1: They can be. They can be quite beautiful. I know you might not realise that. You you don't hold that same opinion.
0: My own personal experience or lack thereof that I I just simply cannot comment. (laughs) (laughs) But I have been to that art place in in Hobart where the wall of vaginas. So I've seen seen plenty of (laughs) vaginas in that context in an art installation. I've seen one. I've seen one. I've seen one. Lee, I've seen one.
1: Oh, please, let's move
0: on. This episode's becoming. Dad, guess what I saw today? Coming <laughs> home excitedly from the museum. Anyway, it's a it's a great uh, modern art museum in Hobart. You should check it out, notwithstanding just the wall of vaginas. Anyway, okay, we're moving on. <laughs> okay.
1: Sorry, Josh, I'm straight now. <laughs> I'm
0: straight now. I'm going to need more than that. One of the things Napoleon did, which I found utterly hilarious and bizarre, mm because I wasn't expecting it, and whether or not this is a choice of Joaquin Phoenix or it's written in text somewhere and he pulled on that, was he did it more than once in the film, I'm pretty sure. He would fall asleep while being spoken to. Like, he was just so unengaged. (laughs)
1: Yeah. It seems like he was quite a bizarre man, and maybe that's what they were aiming for. I mean, the filmmakers Mm. have discussed the duality of how he was a revolutionary and a dictator, and, and I guess a life like that is really hard to portray in a cohesive way in less than three hours. And I think that's Mm. the root of the problem that we're coming up against.
0: Uh, One way to counter the talk on vagina is that I want to talk about...
1: (laughs) Going back to vaginas.
0: Going back to vaginas, yes.
1: Oh, sorry, listener.
0: Because I've just seen a point on here that I forgot (laughs) in some research that I forgot. (laughs) And I've seen it here. Did you know that um, Napoleon's penis is part of a private collection?
1: I have heard that, actually. So...
0: Apparently, and I'm going to, this is an abridged version, look it up. It's actually fascinating, the story of Napoleon's penis and kind of all its travelings and experiences over the last 200 or so years. So when he died uh, during an autopsy in front of like some 20 people, it was like this public autopsy, everyone's just watching him. The doctor like cut his penis off and then it's since then and it was apparently to humiliate him or whatever. I don't know why they they did Mm -hmm. it. He was dead. I just really don't understand. So he got his dick and it's been like travelling around. It's been uh, put in museums at at times. It's been uh, privately bought and sort of kept on a little cotton pad. No one's seen it for for many years.
1: Cotton pad. How do you preserve something like that?
0: Yeah, well, well, I'm not sure it's been preserved very well because it's, in my research, to be described as quite grotesque and shriveled up. It's only about one and a half inches. Now, I'm not saying that's, like, how big he, he was at real life. I mean, it's a 200-year-old severed penis, so I'm <laughs> sure it shriveled over time. But I don't think it would be all that easy on the eye. But anyway, I just oh. thought I'd throw that in there. Napoleon's penis is, like, hanging out in modern times. Just, you know. Because why not?
1: The more you know. Aren't you so glad that you came to listen to Popcorn Podcast? Because we tell you things and we teach you things and you come out. You come out grown from when you started. <laughs> Unlike Napoleon's penis. <laughs>
0: there it is. Mic there drop. There it is. For all right, now. let's move
1: on to cinematography, action, costumes, all the production-y kind of stuff. Oh,
0: I mean, that's where the film's strength lies, right? In its yeah. aesthetic and its world-building. What... What a s- visual spectacle this movie is.
1: Oh, absolutely. And as we said before, most of it is shot practically and in camera, which you just really don't get anymore. And you can really tell the difference. Ooh. Ridley Scott really is a master of filmmaking. He is. And he he loves a violent and gory battle scene, as we said, our Sir Scott does. You know, throughout the film, we go through, you know, the dirty streets to opulent palaces and these vast mm. battlefields. And each set... Is so meticulously put together and fully realised, as we said, because he has so many cameras that need to catch every yeah. angle. You have to really be there,
0: oh, and and it puts you there. It one hundred percent literally yeah. puts you there. And the benefit of seeing a movie like this on the big screen uh, is that you get fully immersed and you can fully appreciate the craft, the art that's put mm. into this into a movie like this. They Apple <laughs> who produced this movie mm-hmm. clearly spared no experience. In bringing Ridley Scott's uh, vision to life. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I really, really admire about how Ridley makes his movies is, as you mentioned, a lot of in-camera stuff, a lot of really tricky practical effects that just deliver in spades from an experience perspective. Yeah. But it's also the use of CGI in, in tandem with that. It's not there to create worlds, but it's there to extend and complement worlds. Mm. I Visually, this movie, and you know I've got an eye for this and CGI where, where I can tell where things aren't real and mm. it's like whatever. There were shots in here that I thought, this all has to be real. But but knowing that there would have been elements of extending the battlefields in some way or tidying up something here and there, mm. you know, that building doesn't a- like actually physically exist unless it did. Like there is, there are scenes and shots here that I was like, I don't know, is it CGI wow. or is it real? It's mm. flawless. Absolutely flawless.
1: The battle scenes in particular are, are breathtaking. He does a battle scene really well. Mm. It's really edge of your seat stuff, you know, on their own. Mm. They're winners. But it just unfortunately feels like everything in between that is confused and just waiting for the next battle to happen Mm. that isn't even fully Mm. explained.
0: But it is exciting when, which sounds awful, because despite him being like a military strategic genius, Mm. so many people died at the hands of his military decisions. Some three million soldiers over his... 50 year reign or whatever it was is awkward and uncomfortable to say. I was always really excited when the next battle came up because there's so much bloodshed and that's real bloodshed, Mm. but um, it took you out of like quite mundane scenes and incoherent story and character. So it it was always a breath of fresh air when, Oh great. We have another battle. Let's go.
1: (laughs) Oh, he's going to kill some more people. Let's go. Yeah. Can I just say, how wild is it that it's someone's job to stand and play a drum during war? Like I you know. have no chance, mate. You don't even have a gun in your hand. You've got a drumstick. You got to <laughs> run with a giant drum in front of you. Good luck.
0: You're not going to save France with your sick beats,
1: are you? It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sick beats. Oh dear. You know we haven't really talked about the performances. Uh, too much. We touched on Joaquin Phoenix, but I mean, Vanessa mm. Kirby, can we talk about her? Cause she's absolutely stunning. She always is. Her portrayal of Josephine in particular is just nuanced and, and gorgeous. Uh, I mean, I can't falter. She just didn't get enough to work with. I think
0: she didn't get enough to work with, but my gosh, she can command a screen when she's mm-hmm. on it. She is utterly mesmerizing. She is very intense. She is very, very intense, and I guess Josephine was intense as well because she had this fierce independence, but this vulnerability too, because she was just so infatuated by this man, and she she felt incredibly lost. There was real nuance, there was real complexity to her character, and, and Vanessa did ev- everything that she could to at least grip you in, although not have all that much to do. And I'm <laughs> I'm hoping that in the director's cut mm. we have more of Josephine. And, and she gets her, her dues as a brilliant actress on screen.
1: More Josephine, please. What do you think about the uh, talk that Joaquin Phoenix is going to be up for another Oscar?
0: Mm, it, I'm not feeling it. Well, actually, I hadn't even heard any chatter about his Oscar runnings, but I I think that there are enough lead acting roles that we'll see him be pushed out of the mm. top five.
1: In particular, Bradley Cooper in in Maestro, I'm hearing, is the mm. is the front runner at the moment.
0: Yes. Oh gosh, I cannot wait to see that film.
1: Shall we wrap up our review of Napoleon?
0: Yes, I think we've given it our all, my
1: friends. Okay. Well, Napoleon should have been a lot longer or a lot shorter. Take your pick. <laughs> What
0: do you want, Lee? (laughs) (laughs) Make your
1: pick. So Ridley Scott is a master at this exact kind of historical epic, but much about this particular campaign fails to conquer anticipated interest. Kirby and Phoenix are at the top of their game, but creative choices don't land in a way that does them justice. Looking at the film piece by piece, there are really stellar moments here that show what Scott is made of, but they never come together cohesively enough for compelling viewing. So I'm giving Napoleon two popcorn kernels out of five.
0: There you go. Well, Napoleon, at least visually, is an epic historical drama from the experienced and tenacious Ridley Scott Visually, there is no faulting it, like we've discussed, with completely immersive and lived-in sets, environments and costumes they spared no expense and it showed. It is the battle scenes that elevate the experience to dizzy heights, constantly asking yourself, how on earth did they do that? Especially the ice battle scene, which we've mentioned, that is a, a feat of filmmaking. But Napoleon is incredibly incoherent as a film, with choppy storytelling and a serious lack of depth to what is happening. I wasn't ever bored, just confused. Paired with a Napoleon who I found rather unremarkable, it's not a film I left feeling very connected to or moved by. I'm going to rate Napoleon two and a half, Popcorn Colonel's Lee.
1: An extra half. Extra
0: half. An extra one and a half inch. <laughs> <Almost>. <laughs>
1: You're thinking back to the penis again, aren't you? I am.
0: I'm thinking back to the penis, <laughs> Lee. You are. Right.
1: Napoleon is in Australian cinemas from November 23 before it streams globally on Apple TV Plus at a later date. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
0: So onto our news section of the episode, it's been leaked that Universal is in early development on a new Jason Bourne movie with all quiet on the Western Front filmmaker, Edward Berger, in talks to direct.
1: So this would be the sixth film in the action franchise, which has taken more than $1.6 billion at the box office since it first began in 2002. Wow, that's a lot of
0: coin. Now, it's really early days, so this may be happening far in the future or could fall apart completely, as so many planned films sadly do. There's currently no script in the works and no writer attached to it. It's not sounding good. Uh, so it's <laughs> unclear if original cast members like Matt Damon will return or they'll entirely reboot the property. Have you seen all of these films in the franchise to date? I've got some gaps, I'm pretty I sure. I have,
1: yeah. Um, have you seen the Jeremy Renner one?
0: That's the gap. I, I have not seen that one.
1: That one is actually really good. It's, it's a really strange standalone from the rest of the mm. franchise. Like It would have been great to have seen more, so maybe we'll see more from him now that he's, he's, he's rehabilitated after his unfortunate accident.
0: Now, it seems Melissa Barrera is no longer starring in Scream 7. I've had to take a lot of deep breaths this week with this news. Mm. The actor was dropped from the project after a series of social media posts in the wake of the Israel-Hamas war.
1: Yeah, so she's said some controversial things and Spyglass Entertainment has taken a no-tolerance approach and and dropped her from the film, which is, it's a bold move because she pretty much is the film.
0: She is, yeah, she is the film. If you ask me, they don't have a Scream 7 without her character. Like, Mm. how how would they? They've, They've planted seeds and set up. Her character beautifully over the last two movies that's Mm. leading to something. Where is that going to go now? It's Mm. just really, really disappointing.
1: And we were talking earlier in the week that surely they'll backflip and they'll get her back on board. But then now, soon after Mm. that happened, it's been announced that Jenna Ortega has dropped out of the project due to as they say, scheduling conflicts with Wednesday mm. Season 2, which her reps apparently informed Bygars Entertainment of before the strikes happened. And, and that may very well be true, but the timing of announcing this is extremely coincidental. And, of course, she would stand in solidarity with with Melissa.
0: Of course. It was literally less than 24 hours after Melissa was booted by the studio. It, it's no coincidence that the news about Jenna moving off the project is is so close to that. I reckon she's standing in solidarity. It'll be interesting to see what happens to the rest of the cast. What's Courtney Cox going to do? Will they bring Mm -hmm. Neve Campbell back in? Because she was really poorly kicked off Mm -hmm. Scream 6 for lack of money that she was she was worth. So that was really disappointing. Yeah, I think Spyglass are are really stumbling, stumbling here with Mm. this franchise.
1: We'll see what happens. As you said, I don't think they have a film without those two, but we'll, we'll see what happens. Well, dear listener, it seems that you could be the next Karate Kid. What?
0: Well, martial arts star Jackie Chan and original Karate Kid, Ralph Macchio, appeared in a video released last Tuesday to jointly announce a global search to fill the pivotal role of their co-star, Lee Fong, in the next Karate Kid movie.
1: Yeah, so according to the website for the casting call, the filmmakers are looking for someone to portray... Chinese or mixed-race Chinese in the age range of 15 to 17 years old in the film, which is expected to be shooting in March of 2024.
0: Do you know what? That's not very long to put out a a, a global casting call to find someone who has the acting chops, is relatively unknown uh, and that can do karate. Mm. (laughs) They're filming in like four months. That's really not much time.
1: Well, it might be too long because it's reported that within one day – there's already been ten thousand submissions.
0: That's insane. Yeah. How the hell do you go through ten thousand submissions
1: <laughs> in one that's day? not a job. Ten thousand came in in one yeah. day.
0: Gosh, I wonder how long they'll keep the floodgates open for, because that's uh, seems like quite a quite a jobs worth ahead of yeah. the of the studio.
1: <laughs> that's what they'll be spending all their time doing until <laughs> March next year.
0: That's it, and they'll just throw the kid in in onto set and be like, "Act quick! Here's a <laughs> <the> script." <laughs> So, Lee, there's a new streaming service on the scene and it's free. Tell us about it.
1: Oh, I love a free streaming service. (laughs) I don't think there are very many, are there?
0: (laughs) (laughs) There aren't. (laughs) Gimme, gimme, gimme. But we love them. We love them all the same.
1: So Umbrella Entertainment are trailblazing because they've launched Broly with a focus on Australian classic and new release film and television. It has more than 300 titles on it at the moment, including wow. Jennifer Kent's The Babadook and Gregor Jordan's Two Hands, classic Australian films, alongside rare and cult classics such as John Rapsey's Sweat, Alan White's Erskineville Kings and Kimball Randall's Cut.
0: Uh, Broly will also have a section of, for Indigenous Australia, including a collection of films starring David Gulpil, such as Nicholas Rogues, Walkabout, Henry Saffron, Stormboy, and Peter Weir's The Last Wave. I'd love to hear that. It's awesome.
1: So many nostalgic titles in there. An Australian film... It's just so exciting. So I'm really, really, really stoked that we'll get films like Kylie Minogue's The Delinquents. Have you ever seen that one?
0: No. Is that a massive throwback? Are we talking like 80s, 90s? Put it on
1: your list. Put it on your list because you will love it. I I think you will really love it. Really? Okay. You can sign up to Broly at broly.com.au.
0: Oh, Lee, oh. well that about does it for another jam-packed episode of Popcorn Podcast.
1: It was a big one. We covered off Ridley Scott's Napoleon, which is in Australian cinemas from November 23.
0: And if you feel like braving the four-hour, ten-minute director's <laughs> cut sometime next year, I think in January or whatever, then yeah, let's let's have a viewing party. Let's watch it and see if it's <laughs> any better than what we thought the theatrical cut was.
1: That does it for another episode of Popcorn Podcast with Lee and Tim.
0: And as always, thank you so much for listening.
1: We'll catch you next time. If you enjoy our episodes, head over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe. While you're there, we would love you to rate us and leave a review. You can also find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Alexa, and where all good podcasts are found.